0: Anthropologist Jared Rosenbaum here with the Wild Plant Culture Podcast. My guest today is Drew Altland. He's a Senior Manager of Water Resources at RK&K. I first met Drew when he gave a presentation for the New Jersey Stewardship Roundtable a couple years ago. And he stood up before our group, gave a PowerPoint, talked about streams, and when he was done, I literally just wanted to say can you do that whole presentation over again? Because there was so much richness in there, so much detail, and most of all, it really opened my eyes in terms of historical conditions and impacts on our streams. It gave me this whole new framework for thinking about what our streams looked like, how they behaved, and why, in many cases, our stream corridors are so degraded and damaged. As he was talking about mill dam siltation and channel moving, I was just thinking about different places where I've done botanical field work. It really hit home. I was really excited to be able to invite Drew to speak on the podcast. And we talk about pre-settlement conditions for streams. What different historical effects of the colonial era have been on our stream corridors and wetlands. What their present condition is like. And what Drew and his colleagues are doing in terms of restoring stream corridors. Here's a little quote from an article that Drew shared over to me. It's called Natural Streams and the Legacy of Water-Powered Mills by Robert C. Walter and Dorothy J. Merritt's quote. Before European settlement, streams were small anabranching channels. By the way, if you don't know what anabranching means or not quite sure, like me. If you look it up on Wikipedia, there's a really boss image there. I think I'll share that online. Just an awesome looking photograph from Alaska. Anyhow, anabranching. A little bit like what it sounds like. Lots of little side, side branches. Streams were small anabranching channels within extensive vegetated wetlands that accumulated little sediment but stored substantial organic carbon. Subsequently, one to five meters of slack water sedimentation behind tens of thousands of 17th to 19th century mill dams buried the pre-settlement wetlands with fine sediment. These findings show that most floodplains along mid-Atlantic streams are actually fill terraces, and historically incised channels are not natural archetypes for meandering streams. Curious what that all means? Stay tuned. Want to join in on the conversation? Find me at Wild Plant Culture on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for spreading the word about this show, leaving reviews, and if you have questions you want discussed or suggestions for guests for me to interview, please drop me a line at jared, J-A-R-E-D, at wildridgeplants.com. Speaking of WildrichPlants.com, this podcast is brought to you by WildRich Plants, where we grow native plants from locally collected seed and offer them for gardeners and restoration projects. It's spring. The busy season is here for the nursery. I'm excited to be getting this podcast out just before things go totally crazy. I've been doing some interesting field work already. Been doing monitoring at controlled burn sites pre and post in Morris County, New Jersey. Really excited about building up a couple years of data for those and seeing how these new stewardship-oriented controlled burn programs in North Jersey are affecting wildlands. At wild Ridge Plants, we grow a lot of woodland species which are fundamental to forest understories, but not commonly available as nursery-propagated plants. Yesterday was a beautiful spring day, mid-60s, clear. We potted up bloodroot, blue cohosh, spring beauty, woodland sunflower. It was just an awesome day. So excited to be working with these plant species. I've also been working on a bunch of tunes for a future Horse Graveyard album. Those of you who have tuned into the podcast before might have heard some snippets from our old record 15 years ago, but we're getting the gang back together. And what you heard at the beginning of this podcast is a little sneak preview, a snippet, the intro of a song, sort of a demo track that I've been sending around to me bandmates, and the piece is called Arroyo at least for the time being, until somebody writes lyrics for it. And it seemed like an appropriate piece for a podcast on stream systems. You can find more Horse Graveyard on bandcamp.com. And now, without further chatter, I present to you, Drew Altland. As a kid, were you already connected in any ways to waterways or the natural world, or is this something that just happened to you through your academic experience?
1: No, I mean, I, um, you know, I grew up in like a a log house with a wood stove in the woods, you know, in southern York County, Pennsylvania. So um, my parents, you know, they didn't have a huge forest to track, you know, three acres, but surrounding that was, you know, I don't know, thousands of acres of uh, of forest and streams and just you know, the the, the days of, uh, you know, hanging out with friends was exploring the woods. And, you know, if I didn't have poison ivy for a day in, in the summer, it was like something weird was going on, you know, um. just <laughs> not being smart enough to uh, stay out of the, the things that get you in trouble, you know. Um, but, you know, and then that's translated into, um, you know, the love for the outdoors with hiking and backpacking and family trips are always centered around, you know, what mountain are we going to climb in the state and that kind of stuff. So it's, it's kind of, you know, there's a part of engineering where it's a lot of this sitting in front of a computer day in, day out, designing highways and bridges. And that I knew that wasn't something for me. I wanted to have, you know, part of a stake and something outdoors that's tangible and and, uh, not just sitting in front of the computer every day. So this was kind of a path towards that, that, um, you know, I I push hard to get to. And, you know, thinking about the questions that you framed to me, you know, and thinking about responses. And part of it was like, that journey to get to the work that I really enjoy—you know—it doesn't just fall on your lap. You, know, yeah. you kind of have to make those things happen by making changes in your life and jobs and that kind of stuff. You know.
0: Yeah. Were you able to get into this kind of work right out of college?
1: No, no, actually not. It was, um, it was. Uh, you know, I graduated from college in um, in the early '90s, and the job market was somewhat depressed then. You know, there wasn't like there weren't people lining up to hire engineers at that point. So, you know, when I got my first job offer, it was like, I'm going to jump on this. Like there's no tomorrow, you know, cause I want to get start getting paid and, and start my career. Yeah. Um, but the, um, the job opportunity was really, um, doing more traditional civil work. So it was the, um, uh, Pipeline design, you know, designing roundabouts and intersections, parking rides and figuring out how many parking spaces you could fit into a space with slanted parking versus, you know, single aisle, double aisle um, travel lanes. And, uh, you know, at the time I was, you know, not extremely happy to be doing that work because I wanted to be doing, you know, the stuff, stuff that we had talked about with the, uh, you know, the river modeling and so forth, but Looking back now, you know, that experience with traditional civil you know, roadway pipeline work really you know, helped my career in the long run because I um, got to learn a lot about engineering in general and how it applies to the work that I do today. So if we, if we cross a pipeline or we cross a roadway, you know, what are the things that are important to protect that roadway or that pipeline and that, you know, those assets that people pay a lot of money to maintain you know, how can we use the work that we do to um, help those assets survive and 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 keep public safety, you know, at, um, at a high level? Because, you know, the river environment uh, can be pretty nasty. So trying to figure out ways to um, protect assets and investments is, is an important part of the work for sure.
0: So bring me up to speed on, you know, what is your job description now and, and what is... Um, What's sort of your day-to-day, what kind of work do you do?
1: So um, today, I, um, you know, after changing jobs a few times to kind of get to, you know, a, a good spot in a career path where you um, get to do the work that you really love and, and find a firm that really supports that, you know, that, that, that niche that you have, that passion that you have to do the work, sometimes it takes a while to find that fit. Um, So right now I work for a firm um, named Arcane K and came to that firm because they've already had a lot of great experts in place, you know, scientists, uh, landscape architects, engineers, who were doing a lot of water resources work. Um, But they did have, you know, um, a bit of a gap for people who do exactly what I focus on, which is the ecological restoration, stream restoration type stuff. So, um, um, you know, Started there about eight years ago. Um, you, know, you know, have done ecological restoration, of course, before that for probably about you know the last twenty years or so. But uh, R. K. K. has really given me an opportunity to kind of grow a group and then really grow this niche. And um, you know, just really excited about the people that you know I work with every day to do this kind of work. And um, you know, so it's it's really project specific and client specific. So in the work that I do, it's um you're not working for one client every day. So you find these project opportunities that, you know, would be, um, you know, could be anywhere really, but most of the opportunities or most of the work that I I do is heavily focused in the Chesapeake Bay watershed and I would say the the Delaware River watershed quite a bit. But that said, certainly done a lot of projects in, you know, Virginia, the Carolinas, some in Mississippi, um, as far north as Connecticut, and it's really interesting to get out and see different parts of the country um, and how uh, streams are a bit different, you know, uh, the geological settings from the coastal plain to the Piedmont to the mountain, uh, mountain setting. And um, that's the part that the, the team I work with who really enjoy, you know, seeing different different parts of the country, different uh, working for different clients, with different flavors, different types of projects, you know, some focused on um, TMDLs, uh, total total maximum daily load reductions for reducing sediment and nutrient outputs from stream versus uh, mitigation. So if a highway is uh, impacting a stream or a wetland, you know, we could do a stream restoration project to replace um, or help offset those impacts from, from another, uh, uh, another project to create additional wetlands or to um, restore stream footage uh, to offset impacts from another, from another project or just the asset protection. You know, you have a pipeline that's exposed in the stream bed and you know, what can we do to um, either move that asset to a better location or to try to restore the stream in place to protect that asset, those types of projects. And all the clients have a bit of a different flavor and, and um, you know, getting all that experience is, uh, I think, uh, helps our team be uh, more well-rounded in, in different flavors of projects
0: what does a design process look like for you just like very pragmatically stepwise like site visits doing different kinds of analysis and like where are you coming in like in that process what part of it so like okay we hand this off to drew because this is you know this is his section of the project
1: yeah i mean i think it it depends on the client it depends on the project you know the the most exciting projects are the ones where we get involved in, you know, the very earliest where, um, you know, a client has a, uh, a watershed that's pumping out um, a lot of pollutant, you know. So, you know, that's the other thing too, is um, the whole mindset of streams um, providing uh, impacts to receiving waters is, I think, Know if it's a new thought, but it's, to me, you know, in the field I'm in, somewhat new. You know, a lot of times, um, state agencies, federal agencies like the Army Corps of Engineers and our, our state government uh, departments of environments, you know, they're really focused on preserving and protecting streams and wetlands, and, and rightly so, you know, I and mean, then they should, but sometimes they don't, people don't realize is that the stream is so unstable that it's actually, become a pollutant uh, generator where it's it's pumping sediment and nitrogen and phosphorus downstream because uh, there's so much erosion going on in that stream system. So, you know, the most exciting projects, you know, to kind of get back to your questions are the ones where, you know, a client will come to us and say, hey, we have a watershed that we want to restore you know, where should we focus the projects in the watershed to get the most, um, the most benefit, you know, not only for the dollars that we spent, but for the pollutant load reductions, you know, within the watershed. So sometimes it's that, you know, that um, watershed analysis to kind of figure out where the, where the best projects are in the watershed. Um, then other times it's okay. We have this problem, you know. We have this uh, roadway embankment that's under attack from the stream, or we have an exposed pipeline, and we want you to focus on, you know, fixing that, that problem for us and coming up with alternatives, you know, to to um, to look at the best way to go about that for spending the money wisely. You know, is it is it a big fix or can it be a really small fix? You know, to to and, and sometimes the the palette for how long they want the fix to last is flexible too. So sometimes they want a permanent fix for, you know, the service life of that service life of that utility. Or sometimes they say, you know what, we're only going to have that utility there for another five years. Can you buy us five years for, you know, until we get back there and replace it. So, um, you know, I guess, long story short, you know, the gamut of projects can be, you know, pretty broad from the starting point to very specific, you um, know, you know, sometimes the most challenging projects are the ones where um, a client comes to us and say hey you know we have this reach we want to do a restoration and usually they they come to them because you have a willing landowner or they own the land so it makes life a lot easier for everybody if your landowner and your stakeholders are on board. So sometimes projects come by opportunity more by it's a great project site to restore yeah. and um, you know those those sites can pose some challenges sometimes because you know to get to a long term sustainable solution, sometimes you, you know, you need a, a big footprint to work in. And sometimes landowners, you know, aren't are not keen to giving up a lot of space to to fix a problem that they're maybe not fully invested in. I don't know if I answered your question with all that, but
0: Yeah, you know, I brought to mind this total digression, but I remember, I don't actually remember if this was Sandy or Irene, but it did a lot of damage up in the Catskills. And I remember going up you know, a year or two later, and there were all these, I guess, sort of stream solutions, I'm making air quotes, where they just dumped like huge masses of boulders and you know, every kind of like contour and bend of a stream. And I guess two things that came out of that for me were one, like, is this really a solution? Because it was just dumping rock. And the other thing was—it was actually surprising to me to see the level of damage in what I would assume would be one of our more intact natural, ecos- you know, natural areas up in the Catskills. But just streams com- coming out of the streams coming out of the mountain, and then just these massive washouts along rural roads, and obviously down into the more settled valleys there. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean um, I saw um, why that damage in Vermont too I think with that same storm system went through there and basically just took out roadway embankments along you know the floodplains like they weren't even there and you know part yeah. huge uh, caverns into the hillsides and and you're right it's it's that um, it's that bed load so you know you get that uh, you get those huge rain events um, and if you have a source of uh, that cobble and that gravel sitting there that can be um, suspended by those big events um, you know we've have so much influence in these floodplains now you know from our anthropogenic impacts and development and roadway crossings and so few of the roadway crossings are really you know set up to move that type of bed load from those catastrophic events so it basically gets choked choked up you know it can't get through the system and when you have that much load being delivered and it can't get through, it piles up and then it goes, you know, the stream goes, um, goes sideways, you know, because if it can't move it, it's got to adjust and go usually wide and it takes out space to try to, to figure out what to do with all this load to get through the system and it's just choked up, um, you know, and, you know, the, the more mountainous regions you get to. Um, you know, starting with like the Rocky mountains, you know, to the Appalachians, you know, um, you see some pretty big differences, you know, on, in this bedload and a lot of the areas that we work that aren't, you know, in the Catskills or in the more mountainous regions of Vermont, New Hampshire and so forth, we tend to find that, um, you know, the bedload movement through the systems, you know, around the Maryland, the Pennsylvania, uh, you know, upper Pennsylvania, with the glacial till can be, uh, you know, um, similar to what you saw in the Catskills and so forth. But a lot of times um, these systems aren't moving a lot of bedload unless the streams are really incised and um, are able to do it because of anthropogenic impacts. You know, we talked about, so sometimes the, you know, the historic streams were much smaller with much more well-connected floodplains. They weren't able to move that bedload because they didn't have enough uh, depth and they couldn't generate enough velocity and shear stress to move that material and now that we've channelized these streams and we've made them deeper and we've made the channels larger now they can con- convey so much more discharge and flow which translates to how much more material they can move from their banks and their bed that you know maybe historically we find that they weren't able to and and You know, just as compounds, you know, with the roadway crossings and the developments in the floodplain, and, uh, you know, it it kind of um, exacerbates the situation.
0: So, when I saw you present, I guess, about two years ago at the New Jersey Stewardship Roundtable, one of the things I really appreciated about your presentation was your historical approach and the way you sort of progressed through time to try to trace back some of the problems we're experiencing and also to contemplate you know, what is our sort of desired restoration target or what could these stream and wetland complexes be like? So I was wondering if you could take us on a similar journey through time, maybe going back sort of pre-European arrival and talk about, you know, I don't even know what the language would be. You know, are we talking about streams? Or are we talking about streams and wetlands as these sort of complexes, but tell me about what a hydrological system in our area might've been like, um, you know, centuries and centuries ago before European arrival.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, um, you know, I think, um, you know, some of the, you know, the, the, the research we were talking about earlier, you know, um, Luna Leopold and um, uh, Red's Woman, um, that uh, some of the early research that they put out really talked about, you know, looking at streams as this bankful full channel and what did, what did this bankful full channel mean and how, how large was a channel that was, you know, I was doing the air quotes as well with bankful, and what does bankful mean. And, um, you know, uh, somewhat early in my career, there's this, um, there's this river training program that, you uh, at the time in the nineties was really, you know, kind of a right to passage. You know, if you wanted to do this type of work, ecological restoration, stream restoration, floodplain restoration, uh, there's a man by the name of uh, Dave Roskin who uh, teaches courses in Colorado about, um, you know, how to to restore rivers. And it's a four short course uh, session where you basically go to Colorado at the time I think he has classes now you know uh, throughout the country but at the time they were pretty much centered in Colorado which was a real shame to have to spend you know weeks in Colorado when you were uh, you know, 20 something you know yeah, um, but it was like uh, each course was one or two weeks long so you would go to one course um, a year typically you know it's what with the companies that I we're working for you know could, um, could, could tolerate you know uh, budget-wise because they weren't cheap, of course, and travel and also such things. But as I was going to these courses that were taught by Dave Roskin, who's still teaching courses today, and, you know, uh, at our King K, we send employees through these courses because they are they are valuable, um, because you're basically sitting in the classroom with other like-minded people focusing on this type of work, you know, and people are posing questions and and you're going out and you're looking at sites and you're bringing that data back and you're analyzing it. So it's just a focused environment where you can really think about you know, things and ask good questions. Um, not always get good answers, but get you thinking, you know. Um, but as I was taking those courses in Colorado and coming back east, you know, to uh, where I was doing the majority of my work at the time in Maryland and Pennsylvania and trying to think about how do I apply this bank full channel to uh, the streams that I'm studying in the city of Baltimore or um, Baltimore County or areas in the Baltimore DC area. And I was having a really hard time um, because the bank full channel is really centered around this effective discharge. And the effective discharge is really centered around moving bed load, okay? So you have a supply of bed load that's coming from the hillsides or the mountain and you need to move it through the system. And there is this, um, this Lanes law theory where, you know, a stable system is where the sediment coming in is equal to the sediment going out, then you have this equilibrium condition. And that's kind of the school of thought that Rosgen was teaching from, you know, the people who mentored him, like Luna Leopold. So um, in the bank full channels, typically centered between, you know, one and a two year storm, which is a pretty big discharge, you know, to try to, to push through, a stream system and hold the stream system together, you know, because the bigger the channel gets, the more energy it has in it and the more potential it has for erosion. So, you know, I struggled for a lot of years and starting to think about, well, who else is seeing the issues with trying to design streams with these really big channels? Um, and, the, and the convention at the time was that if you were an urban system, the channels even had to be bigger because the discharges got bigger, right? The more impervious area in the landscape, the more runoff you have, and the bigger the discharges are. And the theory was, um, okay, the channel needs to get bigger to handle that urban flow. But in my mind, the bigger the channel got, the harder time I had trying to find a stable solution for holding that channel together. So it basically didn't rip itself apart. And in the urban environment, you know, you don't have a lot of bedload. You know, a lot of these streams I was working at the time, the whole upper watersheds were piped. So there was no sediment or very little sediment coming into the systems. And the sediment that was being generated was coming from the channel itself. So do you really want to put a design together that's depending on the upstream reaches, basically eroding so that I can move that sediment through my system where I'm restoring this reach between two roadway crossings? So I yeah, had just really struggled with that for, for years and, um, you know, started thinking about, well, who else is seeing things this way? And, and um, at the time had the opportunity to get to know uh, some professors like uh, Art Parola at the University of Louisville, um, Dorothy Merritt at Franklin and Marshall, Bob Walter, and, and started uh, um, having projects where I could collaborate with them. So a project site would turn into, you know, not only a restoration, but also somewhat of a research project where these professors would come to the site and and we'd work together to think about, you know, what did these systems look like before they were so impacted and so disturbed by, you know, by this period of, um, you know, the Anthropocene or the anthropogenic impacts. And um, through that, you know, started learning about um, this period of impact, you know, started long before urbanization. It really started during the colonial era um, where, you know, these um, hillsides were cleared, you know, so when our colonial ancestors came here, one of the first things, you know, they needed to do was produce food for themselves. So, you know, much of the landscape at that time was forested. So in order to get, you know, an agricultural landscape, you know, they cleared the forest, um, which required, you know, a mill dam to help saw up the trees and, and um, you know, there were, you know, so as they were clearing the forest in one area, they were typically building a mill dam on the stream somewhere in the area to basically, you know, um, take the timber and turn it into something usable. And then as the land was being cleared, you know, all of that sediment, there were no erosion control measures back then. So all of that sediment was kind of running off the hillsides and into the streams and being collected behind the mill dams that were being built to basically store a water, you know, uh, a source of water for a day that they could run through a mill race over a, a water wheel to basically turn the turbine to do the uh, the work that they need to do for the day. So it was kind of like a little bit of a perfect storm where these um, uh, these systems, these watersheds are being so impacted, um, because of these, these land use changes. And I think the unintended consequence was all this sediment wasn't necessarily getting moved through the system. It was getting trapped behind these, uh, these mill ponds. And what happened is we kind of had a base level rising in our valley bottoms where this sediment filled up the valley bottoms. And, uh, you know, the sediment's been called a couple of different things. I think it was. some of the early researchers who discovered this uh sediment filling in in the valley bottoms that Johns Hopkins uh Coleman and Jacobson you know put a paper out I believe it was late 70s or 80s talking about post settlement alluvium you know so yeah they recognized that the hillsides were being uh cleared the sediment was uh being dumped in the valley bottoms and they 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 found evidence of that and documented it um and I think the researchers at Franklin and Marshall came along and said, okay, not only was there, you know, this sediment input from the hillsides, the, the amount being deposited in the valley bottoms was exacerbated by all the mill dams being built in these streams. And it basically, you know, elevated the amount of sediment storage. And I think that's the contribution that they've added that, you know, I've learned, uh, but through all that, you know, you know, now we have these systems that are highly impacted, not only by Colonial era impact, but now urbanization. But the question you asked is, what did they look like before? You know, how did these systems operate before seventeen hundred, or sixteen hundred, or fifteen hundred? And, and uh, you know that—that that to me is always the, you know the million-dollar question: is you know what what were these systems before we you know, we essentially screwed them up? And and working with people like our uh, Perola, Dorothy Merritt, Bob Walter, um, you know, been able to get those answers. Um, that satisfy me at least that, you know, these systems really, uh, you know, from the studies that we've done, and I'm not saying this is everywhere, but it's it's pretty widespread in, in, in my view from the work that I've done, you know, not only in, in uh, Pennsylvania, Maryland, but also, you know, work that I've done in, in North Carolina and Mississippi and Virginia, West Virginia, these systems were really more of an integrated stream and wetland system where you know, from the last ice age over this Holocene period to today, um, you know, we had basically an ice age and a period of warming following the ice age where these valleys had formed as a vegetation grew. And you know, the, the ice age basically kind of laid down the system of, of, of substrate underneath the valley bottoms. And then within that, you know, that non-vegetated substrate this vegetation vegetation started growing as the climate warmed. And then that vegetation put down the layer of um, trace material, you know, leaf fall branches and twigs. And over the warming period, following the last ice age uh, to say 1700, these uh, valley bottoms slowly accreted like a wetland soil. Right? So we find evidence of that you know and, and when we're lucky we find evidence of that in these valley bottoms where it hasn't been removed or hasn't dried out so you know these systems are really you know very small channels uh, uh, rivulets through a wetland system that was slowly accreting over thousands of years by um, you know these uh, this leaf pack basically forming and, and then turning into soil under wet conditions and um, you know through this research on these projects, you know, we've found evidence of that over and over again, you know, and from the coastal plain to the Piedmont, in the Ridge and Valley, um, you know, different geology settings. So, to me, that's kind of like, somewhat of the reference condition, you know, and, and there's, there's been a lot of criticism, well, you know, you can't go back and basically, rebuild those systems in today's modern environment. And, you know, my answer to that is, well, but I think we need to have a target of, you know, restoring those functions that have been lost by those systems. If these systems were highly connected, integrated stream and wetland systems, does it make sense today to try and keep, you know, a 10 foot deep channel with sediment and silt banks, you know, that, um, you know, you can't really hold together in the modern, modern um, watershed and the modern runoff conditions. So it's trying to find that, that balance of, um, you know, how much of those loss functions can you return to the system today within the modern setting? And it's, uh, you know, every, every site is different. Every site has different um, uh, space that you have to restore. And, you know, obviously you can't always get back to that, but sometimes you can, or sometimes you can get close. And, and to me, that's often, you know, the target that we shoot for until something within the project reach tells you, you can't get there. You know, and you can usually, you can usually figure, figure that out early in the in the design stages of, you know what is the potential for uplift to take it back to something similar that maybe it was, you know to the pre-colonial era. Um, and the other thing that you asked I wanted to touch on too was, you know some of these uh, historic records that are available. So, you know, back in the, in the nineties one of the first things we would do when we get a project site is we would go to the local historical society and just go through the historical records and maps and land uh, transfer records and just get information about, hey, what was going on in this watershed? Where was the industry? you know Where was the mill building? And then um, kind of use that to kind of put together what the impacts were, not only, you know, from the 50s to today, but from, you know, 16, 17, 1800s. And those, uh, those, uh, there's this whole series of maps that were produced in the eastern United States in the uh, mid 1800s, 1850s, 60s, 1870s. Um, some of them were done by um, Hopkins was one uh, map author. Uh, Martinique, I think, was another. But those maps are just really telling because you look at what what the streams look like in 1850, and you can just see records of the streams being straightened and relocated and mill pond after mill pond with a mill race connecting up different parts of the streams. And, and, you know, they're just so interesting to go back and look at even by 1850, the amount of manipulation that was going on within our stream corridors. And then you take that to today and you say, okay, here's a road that existed in 1950. That's probably this road today. And this stream was here, but now it's there. And, um, just a lot of really interesting information that you can pull. And uh, now a lot of that information has actually been, you know, digitized and put on the Library of Congress. So now you can just go to the Library of Congress website, search your county, you know, pull up these maps and they have really high quality um, images on there that you can zoom way in on and you don't lose the quality JPEG 2000s type, uh, type quality images, which are just fantastic. Um, You know, that's that's the really exciting part of these projects is all this upfront trying to figure out, you know, what was the history of impact and how does that influence our designs going forward? It's just uh, something that I think I enjoy. I know the team I work with really enjoy that part of the work for sure.
0: Yeah. Um, You know, always having discussions like this, like I want to be out in the field seeing what you see with your eyes or like being able to present a picture of that for our listeners. So I'm going to try to get the ball rolling with the best example I can think of, which may not be that great of an example. But a couple years before I saw your presentation, initially, I did some botanical survey work at a large nature preserve a county Park actually in northern New Jersey called Malin Dickerson Reservation. And it's, you know, about 3,500 acres or so, if I remember right, but it's also surrounded by some very large wildlife management areas. So the total area of contiguous forest there is, I think, on the acre, on the on the order of tens of thousands of acres. And there are a couple of headwaters of significant streams and rivers that come out of Mellon Dickerson and then, you know, kind of work their way through the rest of the, the northern part of the state. And doing field work there, one of the things that was initially confusing, but also exciting was we'd be tracing these streams up to their headwaters. And one minute they would look like a stream and you know we'd be walking along the banks and kind of inventorying what's on the high end and you know looking down in the cobblers or whatever. And then all of a sudden it would broaden out and there'd just be like a big shrub swamp, or it would broaden out and there'd just be a big forested wetland where it wasn't even really that wet but the ground just felt like aerated and spongy at the same time like it was constantly inundated with water but it wasn't a condition of like necessarily poor drainage per se or sort of puddling or that kind of like remnant after a flood where there's just standing water it was just this ground that was remarkably permeated and the herb layer in there were both species that I would typically associate with wetlands and other species that I think maybe now I would see up on like the high bank of a stream but maybe not as happy as it could be and maybe what it really wanted to be was in this sort of like very wonderfully like watery, but also kind of aerated and flowing sort of spongy zone. So I know spongy zone is probably not a scientific term that you work with very often, but having said that and just getting the ball rolling, like, could you paint us a picture of what a stream or a stream wetlands complex might look like? Or even if there's a site that you've been to that you feel most exemplifies what a pre-settlement condition could have uh, just like visually looked like?
1: Yeah. <clears throat> no, I think, um, I think what you're describing, you know, makes a lot of sense. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, when we get to these headwater streams, you know, the, the, the picture you're describing makes a lot of sense to me because as you get up into these uh, hillsides is I think what you start to see is that the, at the, at the base of these hillsides or the, the toes of these valleys is where you get a lot of spring seepage kind of coming out, you know, from, from, Underground to the surface are getting close enough to the surface where the vegetation growing on the surface is interacting with that water source, you know, and you get uh, you get this uh, um, this zone of this root zone mixing with soil, uh, which carries a lot of permeability in there because of the you know the root masses in there and the roots that shed shed their layers every year, and it just kind of keeps that that system. Um, you know, somewhat aerated, um, spongy. <clears throat> and then as those systems, you know, start to gather more water and you're moving down valley, you know, eventually you start moving into, you know, little channel systems or little rivulets of flow that go through there as you start picking up runoff, you know, so it's like you, you know, you start with this soggy environment that's really uh, focused on the groundwater connection for these seeps. And then, you know, as the drainage area gets bigger, you start picking up, the runoff components from rainfall that converts to runoff and then you know you start filling these channels and I think you know these pre-colonial systems were really you know those types of, of systems where you had um, you know these vegetation layers growing into groundwater so that when you had a um you had a seed coming in the vegetation was growing there but then when the runoff event came it was basically inundating that same layer of vegetation, you know, and it didn't happen, you know, once a year, you know, with this bankful theory where it was happening, you know, once every year, or once every two years, this is essentially happening every time you have a runoff event because these small channels are essentially, you know, derived to carry kind of base flow or the spring flow. And of course spring flow has variability to it, you know, seasonality. So the channels, you know, that would carry spring base flow, you know, would be completely filled. But maybe a summer base flow, the channels would be, you know, maybe half filled or a quarter filled. But the channels again are only sized to really carry the spring base flow. So when the water drops, um, you know, in the summer, you're talking about a channel that has a couple inch of bank, not a couple feet of stream banks. And um, you know, the the picture that I think, you know working with these researchers that, you know, kind of reappears over and over again with these sites that we study is exactly that where you have systems operating all on one plane where you have groundwater, surface water, and flood flows all kind of converging on the same elevation. And then underneath that root mass, you know, historically would have probably uh, been tied to a groundwater aquifer. You know, you have this permeable layer Underneath this, not only the channel, but underneath the whole floodplain system that the vegetation has grown on. So, you have this process of hyperate exchange going in between the channel and the floodplain because you have this permeable layer underneath this vegetation zone that's exchanging water constantly. That water's going in, the water's coming out, water's coming from the sides of the valley walls with the seeps and intermixing with the flow coming down the valley. And you just have this uh, almost like this hydroponic system of uh, a network underneath the vegetation that's kind of um, bringing it all together. You know, it's uh, those are the systems that, you know, we, we try to emulate and recreate. And when we can be the most successful at eco restoration, is when we can pull those pieces together. And it's, um, it's really unique when we can do that because there's so many man influences that kind of prevent that from happening. You know, there's a utility crossing that's above that layer. And now we can't move that utility easily and get down to that layer. Or there's a bridge or a culvert that has the system perched up on the legacy sediment so we can't get down. So there's these constraints that we have in the modern setting sometimes that prevent us from getting to that type of system. But when we can, it's really something special. You know, we've got some projects every now and again where we can, Basically, tie into that historic aquifer to basically recreate those spongy soil conditions that uh, that we uh, uh, think you know that exist here, you know, for for many thousands of years before um, before these impacts. And you know, <clears throat> another thing that reminds me is sometimes people bring up you know these systems before 1700, say before the post-settlement area era when um, when the European uh, came and and kind of occupied this this land is that hey there was a footprint of native americans here for you know thousands of years and you know what was the footprint of the native americans on 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 the landscape and of course they were you know they had agricultural practices they had land clearing as well but the interesting thing is from 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 the research that uh, especially that Dorothy Merritt and bob walter are doing is they can kind of look at these soil profiles and they can kind of find a signature of when, um, when this new legacy sediment was laid down on top of that spongy soil that you're describing, yeah. and when it, when it is there, you know, in the, in the valley bottoms, not necessarily the hillsides, but on the valley bottoms. And they use uh, some rapid testing methods in the lab. And uh, I believe one of them is called uh, magnetic susceptibility, which basically uh, measures the, the fallout of, uh, of, uh, uh, basically, uh, carbon fallout from burning fossil fuels. So, basically, when they got here and we started burning a lot of the timber that was being cut down, that put a signature in the soil. And it basically goes back to right around, um, you know, that 1600, 1700 year where you can put it, you know, the date to where that new soil deposited. But you don't see that prior to that period, you know, when the Native Americans would have been occupying the space. So, um, you know, it seems like. Most of the damage that we see in our streams and our valleys today really, really started, you know, with the uh, the European um, populations moving here in masses, and not, you know, a signature of, of what was there before.
0: So, can I take a stab at paraphrasing to see if I see if I get this? Um, it seems like those earlier stream conditions, where they may have been essentially connected to groundwater, and the land around the stream would have you know probably been essentially on a level with the stream itself that received massive sediment load from logging and also from mill dams which sort of built up all the sediment behind them and essentially raised the valley floor level by what you know feet meters and so that the stream itself is actually perched above where the historic stream level would have been and as it's cutting downward is just cutting downward through all these sediments from the last couple hundred years and it's almost like going back down towards where it should be except now we have these heinous erosive big banks and a totally cut off floodplain and all those plants that are you know might have initially been like a wetlands plant community on the borders of a stream are are cut off. They're no longer fed by this spongy groundwater layer, and instead, they're getting water in these sort of like violent, hot flashes when you have a when we have an extreme flood event.
1: Yep, yep. So the floodplains that you know that that process that you described was, was spot on, but you know there's like stages of that process happening. So you know when the mill dams were being used in operation. You know the the streams were the most perched at that time right because those mill dams but you know these mill dams that were built you know sometimes hundreds of years ago are now falling into disrepair and nobody's maintaining them anymore for the most part so these streams are incising you know as these mill dams are degrading you know so as they degrade the stream beds go down because the soil that deposit in these valley bottoms is very fine you know, silts and clays are so very easily erodible. I mean, the clays are obviously more resistant than the silts and the sands, um, but it is a material, especially, you know, with the, with the urbanization effects and the increased runoff that kind of exacerbate, you know, these, uh, the incising of these channels. And then once the channels do become incised, then, you know, you're carrying more water in it. It's almost like a, a cyclic process where it kind of gets worse with time. And then as that channel incises, the floodplains that are up there are getting, you know, more and more dry And the vegetation that's growing on those floodplains is not the wetland vegetation anymore. Now it's the, the drier, you know, that's, you know, that the, where the invasive species will typically thrive or you you know, your rosimuth flora and your tola populars love that environment, you know, and these weren't the floodplain environments that these systems evolved to be. That's the, you know, that's the, the the systems that are here today because of these hundreds of years of impact that have occurred on these floodplains. And uh, you know, there's a big tug of war with that. You know, you know, like I was saying earlier, the agencies, you know, the permitting review agencies often want to preserve and protect these systems because, you know, the viewed as nature's lungs, you know, they streams and everything we want to do, we want to preserve and protect these floodplains and these streams. But, you know, sometimes the, the history of impact isn't well understood, or there's a lot of value put on what's there today, you know, and, and I'm not saying there's not value in what's there today. I just question whether or not, you know, we're achieving, um, you know, all the value we can get out of those systems, by you know what's left there today with these dry floodplains and these large stream banks that are eroding, you know, is it what has more value that total popular forest on that modern floodplain, or is it more important to get the stream system set up so it doesn't pump out a lot of sediment and nutrients from eroding itself? Yeah. You know, and there's there's a big debate on, on that honestly, and it, it can create a lot of controversy and stakeholders. Um, landowners, very, very passionate about that argument. And, and sometimes I'm not very popular with the, with the restoration approaches that we come up with because, you know, those trees are really important to people because, you know, if we cut down those trees, they're going in those people's lifetime, you know, that, that comfort, the enjoyment they get out of that forest Probably isn't going to come back to where it is today in our lifetime if we kind of started over, you know, with cutting it down and lowering it to get it to the to the elevation where we can have that that system that we described. So it can create a lot of controversy, unfortunately.
0: That that is so interesting. You know, the way that that meshes with people's personal needs and and the cultural appreciation for various types of natural area because you're sort of asking somebody to trade a nice potentially park-like forest for like an open marsh kind of a situation which i think ranks a lot lower for a lot of people what you're saying really meshes with my field experience again doing work especially in a little bit more urbanized uh and still ex-urban but parts of new jersey that i did some work a couple of years ago uh, near Morristown along the Whippany River and the, you know, it, it's funny calling it a river because it's, you know, it's the size of a stream or a brook there, but it is pretty deeply incised. You know, the banks are probably at least three, four feet down everywhere, even though it's a very level landscape. And in doing fieldwork on the, you know, the vegetative communities along there, the areas along the floodplain tend to be really a mess from a perspective of native plant diversity and also uh, the quality of the plant communities there. You know, uh, young trees, red maples, ashes, tulip poplars. Um, oftentimes the understory though, just steady Japanese barberry, multiflora rose, shrub honeysuckle, wind things like that. But the interesting thing was you'd get these little pockets where for whatever reason the natural hydrology was still you know the it was more hydrologically expressive basically wetter areas maybe they were like a little bit um lower relief and they'd be filled with native sedges and wetlands herbs and sometimes native shrubs things like winterberry holly and so on and the only difference between them and the surrounding forest was not really the land use history or location it was just a little bit wetter of a spot and it just made me think that you have these really indifferent second growth floodplains that yeah they're cut off you can see how cut off they are from the stream because you see how deep the banks are and then you have a vegetation community that is um really undiverse and tends to be monopolized by just a few species because it's very homogenous you know if there's no landform diversity why is there gonna be a diversity of species there? So it's, um, you know, botanically speaking, like a really unexciting area. It's a pain in the ass to do field work there because you're just wading through thorn bushes and then you get, get sort yeah. of depressing stream that's way cut down, even though it's sort of a piddling little thing. And um, in doing field work and and hoping to make appropriate management recommendations, the thing that kept coming to mind for me was if there was some way to have the stream reconnected with this floodplain around it so that we could have more of these natural sedges and native grasses, some of the native shrubs, instead of the um, you know, invaded communities that were really monopolizing the sort of more quote-unquote average conditions. And um, this is probably a little bit of a, a detour from, um, engineering and ecological restoration, but one of the things that kept occurring to me there was like, if we could only get a beaver family to move in every 500 feet or so, um, and really slow this down, I don't know if that really acts in the same way as um, some of the restoration approaches we might talk about, but it's like, what can we do that's gonna take some trees out of the picture, honestly? Is it gonna be a natural process? It's gonna be very low budget, but still might return some water to these floodplains. Um, we don't have to talk about Beaver right now, even though, of course, I'm curious, but what I am curious about is, um, you know, what are some methods for restoring streams? It seems like there's maybe a variety of different ways that you could approach it. You know, Are you raising the stream? Are you lowering the land around it? Are you trying to cut everything down to like, not cut in an aggressive way, but bring everything down to a store condition? I'm really curious to hear um, how you might solve some of these problems?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And uh, you know, um, going back, maybe uh, you know circling back to that training that I was talking about earlier that I went to in Colorado from uh, from Dave Roskin. he, you know um, the, the the design approach that he is teaching, you know it's called natural channel design. Like I said, it's kind of focused on these larger, bankful type channels that, you know, more or less conveying a one to two year storm, but he did outline a series of restoration approaches in there. Um, you know, and he puts a priority level to them where, you know, in, in, in that design methodology a priority, one restoration is basically taking the stream bed, you know, an incised size channel common size channels here, um, taking that stream bed back to the floodplain surface. Um, you know, so just leave it at that for now. And then a priority two would be lowering the floodplain down to where the stream is today. And then what he would call a priority three is basically kind of just uh, more or less kind of armoring the channel in place, you know, not doing a lot of work with the floodplain per se, but just kind of holding the channel as it is today to, to kind of keep the banks from eroding, you know, a lot more than what they are today. And to me, it's like, this prioritization process you know makes a lot of sense you know probably um, and maybe in Colorado where the priority one is to take the stream back to the floodplain if that floodplain surface was the historical floodplain I think you know the part that gets lost here is that you know the floodplains that we have here today are very often you know you know man-made floodplains by all of these history of impacts so does it make a lot of sense? To take the stream back to the top of the mill dam deposits, or mm-hmm. this post alluvium, you know, where you have all this silt clay and you don't have the groundwater aquifer, and maybe where the groundwater inputs are coming into this aquifer is well below those inputs where the legacy sediment surface is today. Now you'll still get seeps coming off the hillsides that, that do feed that modern floodplain surface, and you typically will get you know, wetland pockets on that surface, like you're talking about where you have depressional areas where water can hold and store longer. And because the soils, the legacy sediments uh, aren't highly permeable, usually they don't have tremendous amounts of sand in them. They're usually, you know, more silty material, So they do hold water for a while. They don't drain quickly, you know, most times that, that modern sediment that's in there. But just got me thinking that, hey, the prioritization is all off. Shouldn't the priority here in the East coast where we have these types of impacts, shouldn't we first try to maybe get rid of that legacy sediment and, and remove it from these systems um, to basically reconnect the system closer to where it was historically, instead of going backwards in time. To me, it's almost like we're making the same mistakes we already made. Like we filled in the valley bottoms. Why would we want to fill them in again and let the, you know, like I'm saying, what goes up must come down. It's like, yeah. it's just a matter of time. You take it back up and you know, you always have to come back and tie into the incised channel someplace. So you have that vulnerability where you have to bring the channel back to tie into where it is today. You know, even if you fill that bed, you have to come back down with a high slope. And, you know, the other thing that strikes me is, you know, as we think about within these watersheds, there are these grade controls that, you know, like kind of what we call permanent grade controls, which might be a culvert that a roadway has. So that culvert has a concrete bottom to it. And that's gonna hold the stream bed for a long time because uh, the DOTs and the counties are gonna maintain that culvert and make sure it doesn't fall down or fall apart to protect public safety. So that's kind of a hard control um, that holds that stream bed or you have a utility crossing with a concrete uh, encasement that kind of holds the bed. But you see these all through you know, our, our modern streams today, You know, all of these hard points that are in there some of them, you know, are in the modern sediment. Some of them are way down below the historic beds. A lot of times, they're in that legacy sediment layer. And you know, as time goes by, those things change. You know, uh, we replace culverts because they they uh, provide a fish blockage. You know, fish passage blockage. They have a drop at the outlet. So, you know, the convention says, well, we get rid of that culvert. We put a bridge in, or we replace that culvert and we set it lower. Well, now you have the ability for the stream to lower more, you know, as these things are changed or that utility that's uh, exposed in the stream bed, let's get that utility out of the way and let's move it out of the stream bed and off into the valley wall. Well, now that hard point isn't there anymore. So these streams can farther in size. And if we're taking those uh, restoration approaches and we're filling that stream bed to take it back to the modern floodplain and the controls downstream are changing, then that, that design becomes even more vulnerable than the design approach itself that you have to tie back in. You know, these vulnerabilities are kind of added in there where if you're lowering the floodplain down to the modern stream bed, well, at least you're starting from a point where, you know, you're not gonna gonna have to lose a bunch of material to get back to where you are today. You're kind of starting at, I would say ground zero, but you're starting closer to ground zero of where the streams would ultimately evolve to if they go back to uh, something similar what they were, you know, pre-colonial times. Um, And, and, you know, the beaver question is is a great one too, because there are lots of, um, I won't say lots, but there are people out there uh, who are looking at these incised channels and thinking, okay, you know, what is something that I can do to work with these incised channels in these modern forests without coming back and filling in these incised channels? How about if we put a beaver dam analog in there? Basically, a um, you know a, a brush uh, root-wide log system to basically plug up these channels and kind of bring the base flow up to the surface. And um, you know, there's a number of projects that have used that um, that mindset and kind of looking at that. And um, you know, to me, you know, those projects, you know, um, you know, they're just a little more riskier because again, at the downstream end of that project, you're going to have to tie into the existing grade and do some type of armored transition to get back down. And, you know, one thing I've learned about, you know, um, brushy woody materials is that they're very sustainable when they stay wet all the time, but if they dry out, then they rot and they become less resilient over time, you know, so, um, you know, and the other thing with, you know, just, you know, maybe populating beavers into an size channel you know, we see that all the time in nature where you know beavers are trying to survive in these uh, in these modern and sized channels. And it seems like where they have the most success of having their dams be sustainable is in the smaller channels, right? They'll usually go into the, the little channels coming into the floodplain from the side and maybe not the big main stem channel because mm-hmm. what seems to happen when they build a dam in the large channel is once the flood comes through, it washes it out and they have to rebuild it and you know, they and they move them around and then you know the stream will cut around the um, you know, around the dam and blow out the, the one bank or another bank. And it makes a lot of work for them to kind of maintain those those uh, dams and incised channel because the incised channels carry so much velocity and shear stress, it's kind of hard to, to maintain like those check dams and those systems, and they tend to be more successful in the smaller channels that don't have a lot of depth because then their dams are more resilient because they're not getting those flood flows that basically overtop them and, and kind of rode out the sides of them. Um, so, you know, to me, if we're, if we're doing the floodplain restoration approach where we're lowering the floodplain and kind of putting everything on the same level and beavers come in and occupy that space, there's not a lot of risk because, you know, everything's kind of operating on the same elevation. So you don't have a lot of quick drops, high slopes, where if you're bringing everything back to the top of the modern uh, floodplain, then you have, at some point, you have to get past and everything's gonna filter back into that size channel. You know what I mean? Like you still have those drops that are gonna occur um, between between the control points. And then at the bottom where everything you know where you have to tie into existing conditions you get down to the bottom and everything has to basically filter in over a steep drop somewhere so and and i'm not i'm not throwing stones at any approach i think they're all valid for different sites and you know we have approaches at arcane that involve bringing the stream bed back up to the surface and we also have projects that involve taking the floodplain down to the modern surface So both both of those approaches for floodplain reconnection are, are valid and, and need to be used in different settings, um, you know, accordingly. Um, we have one project in Baltimore that's under construction now, and essentially um, there's a road called Northern Parkway that goes through kind of central Baltimore, and it basically buried over the stream that was there. So, you know, the stream that used to occupy uh, this valley bottom is now, you know, pushed into the hillside. So if we were um, to lower the floodplain there, you know, we're basically going into, uh, you know, like a really weather bedrock that's oh, all okay. to a saprolite. So it's like, yeah. what's the point of lowering the floodplain if there's nothing good to get to, you know? And we do have a modern forest there of oak trees and poplars and, and um, okay. um, uh uh we'll see uh, maples you know a whole variety of hardwoods so in this particular case it's like well let's bring the that's bring the channel up to the up to the modern floodplain because you know if there's nothing to get to well, what's the point of lowering it so i think you know when your stream's been pushed around and relocated and altered so much you have to come up with the right approach that fits the right site you know so um but good questions and i think the the beaver part is um you know, is getting a lot of attention you know and And, uh, you know, setting up systems where where beavers can have sustainable um, habitat, I think is uh, a really important thing to think about. And, you know, thinking about sustainability of these projects, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to impact these resources. There are existing wetlands there, there's an existing forest there, there's an existing stream. So if we want to build something and we want to impact all of that, well, I think it's really important to come up with something that has long-term sustainability, you know, and that's that's kind of, you know, the, the way, you know, we kind of come about it is that's, if we're going to impact all these resources, let's make sure when we're done that we have something that's sustainable and not going to come back and be another uh, source of erosion to the downstream environments.
0: It's so interesting listening to all the different complicated pragmatic considerations that go into making a decision about an approach for each of these, whether almost to choose like, you know, there's approaches that innately have flaws or that might be, you know, temporary in some way. And then there's other approaches that might be ideal, except they're very constrained by existing sort of hard infrastructure within the system. And I guess if you, you know, abstractly speaking, if you had responsibility for an entire watershed and could do what needed to be done there, I suppose you'd be starting kind of at the headwaters and working your way downward into the larger order streams. Does that is that logical? Or even on a landscape scale, if you had the opportunity to work in a landscape that had sort of feeder streams and then larger bodies of water, would you be starting kind of in the smaller systems and working your way down in? Yeah, you
1: know, that's um it's an interesting question for sure too. And and you know, I can I can I can think about it in two ways you know um ideally yeah it would be it would be really great to start in the headwaters and work down but I think there are some complications with that um you know we talked about those those hard points in the watershed and what controls the stream profile you know we had all these mill dams in there that raised the stream profile right so and now we have modern infrastructure in there that's kind of holding it perched a lot of times in those modern sediments, or you know, like we talked about a culvert or a utility crossing, um, you know, whatever it is, those hard parts that are in there. And if you start working from upstream to down, you know, you may not be able to get your, um, your proposed stream bed where you would ultimately like to get it to unless you started downstream and worked up, you know. So yeah. I think it's really you know, it's it's really a watershed specific question of where the streams in that watershed are today, like, you know, have the streams and size all the way back to the, the, the historical gravels and aquifer that's there? Or are they still perched well above mm-hmm. that? Were they relocated out of where they historically were because of floodplain development and pushed them into the hillsides? So to me, you know, when a watershed Uh, specific basis, I think those are the things that we'd want to get in and look at to come up with that prioritized plan, like, hey, we probably really can't start in the headwaters until we get some things downstream kind of set at the right elevations first so that when we work from upstream to down, that we can hit the elevations that we want to hit when we get there, you know, and and think about it from almost both directions, Um, you know, in those instances where you have uh, a stream that's perched you know, um, stream corridors that are perched above where they were historically, if you're able to get them down by doing a culvert replacement, and then go to the headwaters and work your way down to that. Um, Does that that make sense?
0: That that makes a lot of sense. It kind of adds yet another layer of complication that I just think makes it fascinating to have to make those kind of decisions about these large systems. I want to ask you, I think a concluding question, although it could very well have been the first question, Um, And I think I'm speaking both selfishly in this question and also for my audience. Oftentimes, when I'm out in the field, I'm trying to make guesses about, you know, what happened here, how functional is this landscape? um, Why is this landscape so messed up? um, Or also, why is this landscape high quality? And to sort of transfer those considerations to streams and wetland systems, which I'm also looking at, and I know that a lot of people listening to this are at least casually encountering those and looking at them. What I'm curious about is one, when you go, and you encounter, you know, let's say a new stream, what are some of the first things that you look at just visually, like a quick sort of quick assessment that give you ideas about how healthy or unhealthy a stream might be, or what kind of questions might you be asking yourself upon encountering a new waterway? And then if I may be permitted to heap on a sort of corollary here, um, are there any sort of down and dirty visual or other sensual cues that you would use for monitoring, assessing the success of a restoration project?
1: Yeah, um, so like I said, one of the um, most exciting parts of a project is that beginning stage of, you know, of uh, you know, maybe doing a quick desktop assessment to kind of see what we can glean from, you know, aerial photos over time, you know, so uh, Google Earth is a really great resource now with the historical imagery where you can go back, you know, you know, sometimes as much as, you know, 40, 50 years and kind of see how the watershed and the stream corridors have evolved even over that little micro period. And then kind of looking at the historical mapping, but then, you know, once you get boots on the ground, you know, to me, it's really, um, you know, taking a look at the stream system to see where it is, Um, you know, typically we want to start downstream and and kind of walk up, you know, within the watershed, kind of get a feel for where's the base control, you know, and and try to figure out, um, you know, how in size is the stream, you know, is the stream on the valley wall or is it in the center of the valley? Um, Is the stream straightened or is it sinuous? How high are the stream banks? What does the stream bed look like? Is the stream bed really, you know, soft, you know, legacy sediment clays and silty material, or is it cobble and gravel? And then within the stream bank itself, you kind of look, you know the stream bank gives you a lot of history of where the stream is. You can see a lot of times different layers in the stream bank, and you know legacy sediment it typically presents itself as this really brown loamy soil. And if you look at it closely, you know I learned this from working with the folks at Franklin Marshall. You see the like these little micro layers of soil within it where it was basically deposited. You know, and these little storm events that would come through and it would lay down a layer, and it would lay down another layer. So Legacy sediment has a very, um, you know, uh, typically distinct look to it. And, you know, when you get to the toe of the stream bank, what does that zone look like where the base flow and the stream bank kind of come together? You know, do you see evidences of a gravel layer in there? Do you see evidence of a, a, you know, hydric soil, like a dark hydric soil in there um, where the stream uh, basically cuts into a low area of what we call a pool or you uh, erosion zone, you know, can you see a gravel layer down there? If you put your hand under the water and you grab some soil out of the bank underneath the water, can you pull out you know this uh, this wetland soil that's uh, you know usually a, a dark hydric soil just loaded with organics? And where's the gravel layer, usually we would see a gravel layer underneath that. And just you know as you're walking up through the watershed, just constantly looking for those clues and indicators of, of, you know, where is the stream in position to where it was historically? And can you see evidence of, of what that historical pre-colonial stream looked like by the gravel layers and the wetland soils? Uh, also taking a look at the, the bed load dynamics, you know, like how much sediments moving through the systems, you know, are there huge bars of gravel and sand or is it pretty devoid of, of gravels and sand? So if you want to restore a system, you have to think about you know, the transport of bed load through the system and where is it getting trapped? You know, so upstream of a bridge or a culvert or a grade control, you see big piles of sediment piling up where it basically it's getting stuck and can't get through the system. Or if you have tributaries joining or the tributaries bringing a lot of bed load but the main stems not or vice versa. So if there is bed load coming through the system, you know, where is it coming from? And how is the tributary positioned to its historical setting versus its modern setting? And can you see in indications in there? So it's just you know the, that detective work of understanding you know, how our streams have been impacted and then looking for clues in the field to basically you know, kind of put a picture together of where it is you know, in that transform, transformable stage of, okay, we filled the valley bottom how you know, it's in sizing how far has it got or maybe there's no you know in rare instances maybe there's no indications of these impacts and the system really is stable and natural and highly functioning and just uh you know picking up those indicators where hey the bank heights in this tributary are only six inches high and it's uh you know the, the floodplain is just loaded with this uh you know, with this soil that's very uh, permeable and wet, and, and, and um, the vegetation is lush and dense, and it looks to be, you know, not filled with invasives and the drier, you know, Rosy multifora species and so forth. So, um, I think, I think that's kind of what it is: is just you know using, you know, what we've learned over the years and trying to put those pieces together as you walk through, and you know every, every couple thousand feet might be different. You know, what you see in the lower mile of the watershed might be something completely different than you see in the upper mile of the watershed or many miles depending on how big the watershed is. So it's um, one thing that never shocks me when we go out and walk these uh, these watersheds and stream corridors is just how messed up our streams are. It's really quite depressing to, to walk and just see how poor a shape our streams are in and and especially in the more urban environments with, you know, with the trash loads and the illicit discharges and the stormwater outfalls that are degraded and and collapsed and falling into the stream and the streams undercutting the storm drain outfall. It's just, um, it's really, it's really kind of sad sometimes to see how bad we've treated our landscape. Um, I think that was the first part of your question. The second part was, I think, related to you know, once a project is restored, you know, what are some indications of success versus uh, non-success? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, ultimately it comes down to sustainability. So, you know, after after a, um, you know, a restoration is, is in the ground and we go out and we monitor it and watch it, you know, in future years and future growing seasons, you know, we want to see, you um, know, you know in the first growing season that we're getting at least a temporary seed well established right so that way it's going to hold in the permanent seed it's going to niche it into the soil so that when the uh, the annual rye you know starts dissipating in the future year that we have that that, that native seed mix kind of um, there in the system that it can grow so in year two we're going out to make sure that the the permanent soil or the permanent seed that we put into the system is generating, populating and growing and and starting to take over. And, you know, we'll get some repopulation of the annual rye uh, temporary seeds in the second year, but it's usually much, much, much less carryover. you know, with that annual seed. And we're looking for the, for the, um, the perennial species to kind of take over and control the landscape. So I think that's one thing that we're paying really close attention to is the successfulness of the landscaping plan to basically take over and hold the stream banks and, uh, and the floodplain areas. Um, we're also looking for, you know, areas where the stream bed, you know, may have incised or the stream may have moved or eroded or a stream bank, you know, uh, migrated some distance. So we're looking for indications of, um, you know, of sustainability, I think is, you know, the first blowing thing that we're looking for. And then if we have those uh, sustainable conditions, you know, we also hope to see that um, if we got our floodplain, you know, really well connected, we want to see the floodplain kind of collecting and and filling with sticks and twigs and detritus material being collected in the floodplain. So we don't want to, we don't want to transport that material through the system. We want it to hang back and hang into the system and for it to be, uh, you know, a retentive system. So the material coming into the, into the restoration, whether it be the, the sediment particles or the, or the, um, you know, the, the carbon in the system kind of want that to stick around and deposit and look for, uh, indications of that depositing in our floodplain. And I think that's, that's a clue to me that, you know, we've, we've had success is that we, we no longer have a system that's pumping out sediment nutrients. We now have a system that's collecting sediment and nutrients and woody materials within the system. Um, but it's that, you know, the vegetation, the physical properties of making sure we don't have the channel eroding or cutting new paths through the floodplain. So there's that physical component to make sure we have that sustainability. And then it's the, you know, the vegetation, population, growth, flourishing, and then, you know, that collection of material coming into the system.
0: I wanna thank you for spending this time with me on a really beautiful day and giving me a window into I think a really holistic viewpoint that you have that integrates history and the sort of larger landscape scale, as well as details about a site. It's really fascinating. I feel like I did right after the first time I saw you speak, which was, I had this sort of like tantalizing little glimpse of what that holistic viewpoint looks like. And I really appreciate the opportunity to have asked you these further questions today and your time answering us. So thanks so much, really much appreciated.
1: Same here, Jerry. Really really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. It's, uh, it's been interesting and uh, really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. If you want to find more of Drew Altland, you can check out his place of employment, rkk.com Find Wild Ridge Plants at wildridgeplants.com Wild Plant Culture at wildplantculture.com Hey, this is imaginative. Find me on Instagram at Wild Plant Culture and Facebook at Wild Plant Culture. And hey, while you're tooling around on the internet, consider giving this podcast a review on the podcast platform of your choice. It really helps. Thanks so much. Bye till next time.